Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. So I debated about um, going public with what I'm about to share with you this morning, um, because this is a, uh, a Sunday that my wife is out of town, and so... I went ahead and checked with her before I, I'm going to tell you a little bit about um, a diagnosis that I got uh, recently, um, and I've not shared it with anybody else in the church yet, um, haven't shared it with any of the elders or any of the staff yet, so I'll just um, explain to you really quickly um, what it is or how I began to um, see it in my life play out some of the symptoms before I tell you exactly what what's happening for me personally, but I wanted to just take an opportunity today just to share it um, so that everybody's on the same page and is aware of what's happening in my world and my life right now. Um, So some of the symptoms that I began to experience um, started actually when I was a little kid. Um, When I was, uh, I think it was when I was in year five, was the first time that I ever noticed this symptom in my my life. I was, I was running at a, a sports carnival. Most of you have been to sports carnivals before. And uh, I was in a race, and I noticed um, at the end of the race, um, there were two or three other kids that were faster than I was in this particular race. And so realized early on, um, at a young age, that I had this thing going on inside of me. But I didn't really tell my parents about it. I didn't tell anybody about it. But it was just something I noticed when I was super young. And then... Most of my growing up years, um, I was fairly athletic. I'm not as athletic now, obviously. Most of you are probably shocked um, that I'm not as athletic as I was back then. But um, I played a lot of basketball, played a lot of cricket, played a lot of um, soccer growing up. And as far as basketball was concerned, throughout middle school and high school, I was probably the best player on the basketball team here in Australia. Of any team that I played on, I played representative basketball. Um, I was normally at least the best player, or maybe sometimes I was like the second best player. But in year nine, uh, our family moved overseas. We moved to the States for just 12 months. And when I went to high school in America, all of a sudden I realized I wasn't quite as good a basketball player as I thought I was. They'd been playing basketball in the States for a long time, although a Canadian invented the game. The US had been, you know, playing it for a long, long period of time. And so all of a sudden I found myself trying to actually make the starting five on the basketball team at the high school that I went to. Fast forward a little bit further, um, I noticed again some symptoms of this issue when I went into university. I got uh, into university and was selected to be a part of a, a, a group of people that instead of doing the four-year degree um, in four years, they selected about 20 of us to do it in three years. And so we would go to summer, uh, summer school, so over November, December, January, February, we were taking extra classes so that we could speed up the process, and instead of getting out of uni in uh, four years, we'd get out in three years. And so I noticed um, that I was able to do that and accomplish that, and it was, it was great. And then I remember the symptoms showing up again after we got married, Kristen and I uh, got married and we bought our first house. And I remember our first home really clearly. I remember going over, though, after we bought our first house to somebody else's house. And I noticed that our house, um, it wasn't the same size as, as these other people's home that we went to. And so I really didn't, I didn't tell Kristen 
about this thing that was going on. I didn't tell any family members or anything like that. But for those of you that are maybe a part of the medical community, you're probably going, I know exactly what Jason's issue is. I know the diagnosis. And you're probably familiar with this concept of comparisonitis, they call it in the medical field. Comparisonitis is something that I've had symptoms of my entire life. And some of you are laughing because you think it's like humorous, but it's actually a really big problem. And I think some of you are maybe chuckling because you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm glad I don't have comparisonitis and Jason has it, but by default, what you just thought in your mind is comparing what I have that you don't have. So therefore, we all have comparisonitis. It's true, right? We all have it. And I think more than ever before in the history of mankind, this thing is an epidemic. And it is ruining our society, and it's ruining our culture, it's ruining families, it's ruining people's health, it's ruining people's finances. It's not a problem that people that are older like me have. It's actually a, a problem, it's a diagnosis that doesn't matter how old you are, you have it. Doesn't matter whether you go to church, you don't go to church. All of us have it. Doesn't matter if you've been following Jesus your whole life or you're still trying to figure out what following Jesus looks like. We all have comparisonitis. I think more so than ever because of these devices right here, comparisonitis I think is at an all-time high in our culture. And some of you immediately are thinking to yourself, well, I don't have a smartphone, so therefore I must not have it. The fact that you just compared yourself with all of us that have smartphones means that it's still a problem for you as well. It doesn't matter how old, how young, doesn't matter who we are, we all struggle with this thing called comparisonitis. Now, I do think that these devices and things like social media have forced us into what I call keeping up with the Joneses 2.0. See, keeping up with the Joneses, it used to work like this, that you found out that the Joneses had a new car when they pulled into their driveway and you looked out your kitchen window and you saw their new car driving in the driveway. Now, you see the new car on social media before they even leave the car sales lot. And so immediately you are familiar with the fact that your Jones, the Joneses just bought a new car and you've not even personally seen the car yet. I remember as a kid, we used to go over to people's homes and we'd go into a, maybe a darker room in the house and they'd have this old thing and some of the younger people in the room, you guys are going to be totally confused by what I'm about to talk about, they'd have this old thing called a slide projector. Anybody remember slide projectors? Raise your hand if you remember slide projectors, okay? And if, you don't raise, if you're not raising your hand, see somebody over the age of 40 after the service and they'll explain it to you, okay? But we would go into a room in these people's house and they'd pull down a screen and they'd turn on this projector and then you'd hear this cha-chunk-chunk -chunk, and one slide would come up and then cha-chunk-chunk -chunk, and another slide would come up. That was the carousel turning as you'd watch them show you all the pictures of the holiday that they just went on. And you'd watch all these pictures of their holiday to Fiji or wherever it was and they had special film and they took these slides on these special film and then you got to experience it. Before the Joneses even get back from Fiji nowadays... We've experienced their entire holiday. 
Keeping up with the Joneses 2.0 is an epidemic in our world, and it's causing all of us to, to live in this land that I like to refer to as the land of Ur. Here's what I mean by the land of Ur. When we're scrolling through our phones, or maybe when you're watching a slideshow at somebody's house, we're constantly comparing the Ur in our life to the Ur in somebody else's life. Let me explain to you what I mean. You're looking on Instagram or Facebook and you see that there are people that are happier than you are. Or they're skinnier, or they're funnier, or they're smarter, or wealthier, or prettier, or cooler, or they have more follower than you do. They've got lots of follower, and you're going, wow, how did they get so much follower? They have way more er when it comes to follows than I do. But before you go too far with this whole idea of living in the land of Ur, and before you say to yourself, well, Jason, I'm not on social media, and so therefore, I don't have this issue that you're talking about, this land of Ur. Here's what you might actually be thinking to yourself, well, because I'm not a part of that group, I actually live in a different land of Ur, where I am sadder, heavier, nerdier, slower, poorer, uglier, loser, more obscure-er, because I don't have so much influence on social media or whatever. In fact, I was having a conversation this week. I couldn't believe it. As I was thinking about what I'm going to talk about today, I was having a conversation with someone this week. Somebody else overheard the conversation, chimed in, and talked about how their life was more obscure than the lives of the conversation that they were listening into. And I thought to myself, even in that, we are comparing ourselves as saying, hey, I'm lesser than you, or I'm more obscure than you, even in those conversations, all of us have this struggle of living in this land of Ur. Now, some of us are part of a special, unique subcategory of people that live in the land of Ur. We actually live in the land of Est, because we want to be the happiest, we want to be the wealthiest, we want to be the healthiest, we want to be the skinniest, and the list goes on and on and on. Not only do we want all these things, but we actually project, oftentimes we project these things onto the people that we love the most. And we say it that it's all in the, in the name of, well, we just want what's best for our kids. We just want what's best for our spouse. We just want what's, we want them to reach their full potential in life. But at the end of the day, what is the thing that's driving us for our kids to be the smartest or for our spouse to be the happiest or the skinniest? It's almost like we're first forcing a little bit of err onto all of the people that are in our lives. Oftentimes the people that we say we love the most and that mean the most to us. And this is a challenge, again, for all of us in the room. Doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter how young you are, doesn't matter whether you've been going to church your whole life or you've never been to church before in your life. This is a challenge that I think is an epidemic in our culture today, in our society today, and it literally is tearing our world apart. A mentor of mine made this statement one time, and it stuck with me every, ever since he made this statement. I remember five years ago when I first heard this statement. When it comes to comparison, Andy Stanley said it this way, there's no win in comparison. Nobody wins. You don't win. The person that you're comparing yourself to doesn't win. Your children don't win. Your spouse don't win. Nobody wins when it comes to comparison. So I want to ask us all a question today, or I want to try and help us wrestle with a question or solve a question today that I think is super important. 
In fact, this next few weeks in this series called Comparison Trap, we're going to be wrestling with this simple question. How do you scroll without losing your soul? How do you scroll? How do you scroll through Instagram or Facebook or whatever it is without losing your soul? And some of you immediately are like, well, Jason, I don't even know what scrolling is. So I don't have this problem. See, you, you just compared yourself again to all the people that scroll. You're saying, hey, I don't com- have this comparison issue because I don't scroll. So for those of you that don't scroll, maybe we can ask this simple question. How do you stroll through life without losing your soul? Because even as you stroll through life, even as you're walking through life, if you've never scrolled through social media, you're looking to your right, you're looking to your left, And you're constantly looking at what other people are doing, how well their kids are doing, how well their retirement's going, how well their job's going, how well their relationships are going, how well their marriage is doing. All of us are constantly, as we stroll through life, whether it's virtually online or physically strolling through life, we're looking to our right and we're looking to our left and we're wondering how we're doing compared to all of the other people that are around us. Now, before we assume that this is just an issue that our generation and our culture deal with in 2019, I want to give you a little bit of encouragement. This is a people issue, which means that as long as there have been people on the earth, this has been a problem for people. It's not a 2019 issue. In fact, this has been going on for thousands of years because all of us have this issue of comparisonitis. Today, I want us to go back in time 3,000 years ago to an old ancient book, an old ancient Hebrew book that the Jewish people grew up reading. And quite frankly, the book is, is a little bit depressing if I'm being really honest. If you read this book at first, you might read through it and think to yourself, man, I wish I had not read that book. (laughs) Because at the end of the day, it seems like everything is just meaningless in this world. But if you read through this ancient book and you really study this book, you come to discover that although much of the world seems to be meaningless, there is a pursuit of one thing that brings meaning and purpose to our lives. And as you can probably imagine, sitting in a church... That one thing that brings meaning and purpose to our lives is the pursuit of God and loving him. Ecclesiastes is the book we're going to take a look at this morning. The author, some people debate whether it was actually King Solomon who wrote the book. Most ancient historians would say, no, it's definitely King Solomon, the third king of Israel, that wrote down this wisdom in Ecclesiastes for us to live by. In fact, he went on a search, a research project. He spent many years of his life, spent a lot of money pursuing all of the things that he possibly could in the world to try and discover what brings meaning to life. And after all of his research, arts and entertainment, wealth, relationships, this guy had 300 wives plus another 600 concubines. He was a really busy man. He pursued all sorts of things, trying to figure out What brings meaning, what brings purpose, what brings joy to life? He wrote down all of his research, wrote down all the results for us to read so that we could have an understanding of what brings meaning, what brings joy, what brings purpose to our lives. It's a fascinating read. Even if you're brand new to the whole church thing, brand new to the whole Christianity experience, still trying to figure out whether you believe everything about the Bible or not, Ecclesiastes is a fascinating read on life. And in this book, 3,000 years ago, 
Solomon addresses this issue of comparisonitis that all of us in the room, we all deal with. He starts off with his research. He says, I've looked all around the world and I saw that all toil and all achievement springs from one person's envy of another. Solomon had the most magnificent temple that the world had ever seen. He had more wealth than anybody on the planet had in that day. He was known as the wisest man that ever lived in his generation. And he would say that even his temple, even all of his wealth, all of the achievement in all of the research that he did, all comes from one driving motivation. Comparison. He built his temple bigger than the other temples that he had seen. He grew his wealth to be greater than all of the other wealth of all of the other kings in the world put together. All achievement, everything in life, all drives from this one idea, one person's envy of another person. I'm a huge fan of sports. I love the Olympic Games. And it's baffled me for years. How is it possible that 50 years ago, it would take a person maybe 15 seconds to run 100 meters? But yet it seems like every four years, somebody breaks the record yet again of the fastest man to run 100 meters. How is that possible? What's the driver? What's the motivation? Besides steroids, that might be part of the reason why it's possible. But besides that, what's the motivation that would cause somebody to want to break the record that somebody else has already set? Solomon would say, easy answer. All achievement. No matter whether it's sport, arts, entertainment, building, wealth, relationships, all achievement is driven by one thing, comparing yourself to somebody else, one person's envy of another. Another way you could say this, Solomon might say it this way, I saw everyone measuring how they were doing based upon how everyone else around them was doing. After all the research that Solomon did, this is what he surmised. I saw everyone comparing themselves, basing how well they were doing upon how well everyone else around them was doing. You know what Solomon said after this incredible statement of the one motivator behind all of innovation and all achievement in all of mankind? He said, this too is meaningless and chasing after the wind. After all of his research, He summarized that all achievement comes down to one person's envy of another person. And he says, this too is completely meaningless. It's like chasing after the wind. You ever watch a dog try to chase its tail and get its tail? You just sit there and laugh at the dog as it's chasing its tail, constantly trying to grab its tail. The same is true for us as human beings who are constantly chasing after the wind. As if somehow, if we just run fast enough, if we work hard enough, we might be able to catch it somehow. We're grasping for it, trying to catch the wind, Solomon would say. This too is just as meaningless as somebody out in the field chasing and running and working hard, trying to catch the wind. Yet if we're all really honest, myself included, aren't many of our days categorized and characterized by a chasing after something that we're struggling to even be able to catch. Now before you say, well Jason, what does that mean then? Do we just become lazy and just sit around? 
because there's really no meaning in trying to achieve things or do well at something to build a legacy or to build a home or to build a family, a marriage, a relationship. Solomon, wisest man that ever lived, he knew that somebody reading this in 2019 might just wonder, should we just sit around and do nothing then? He says, no, no. Fools, he says, fold their hands and ruin themselves. It's not, it's not about not doing anything because it, all of life is meaningless and it's like chasing after the wind. No, Solomon says that the fool is the one who just sits back and does nothing, folds their hand, and in, in so doing, they actually ruin their lives. This is not Solomon's attempt to say to us, hey, working hard or building a great marriage or building a business or building a home or building relationships is all meaningless and we shouldn't do it. He's saying, no, if you just sit back and fold your hands and do nothing, you're going to ruin your life. Then he gives us a solution, the balance between the two. I love the imagery that Solomon gives for us. Such powerful imagery. He says, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. I want you to do me a favor real quick. Everyone in the room. I want you to take your two hands and I want you to place them on your knees just like this. The Hebrew that Solomon originally wrote this in, the imagery that comes with this is actually, it actually looks like this. He's saying, better is one hand. I want you to turn your hand up like this. Better is one hand open with tranquility. Better is one hand that has peace and calm and contentment and tranquility in that hand. And I want you to take both your hands and I want you to make a fist like this. Then two fists that are filled with toil and chasing after the wind. Squeeze them as tight as you can. And then I want you just to release them slowly. Feel the difference how that makes you feel physically? Do it again, really quickly. Squeeze them as tight as you can and then release it slowly. Even physically, you can feel the difference. That's what Solomon's talking about. Better is one hand filled with contentment than two hands that are completely full, but they're filled with toil and chasing after the wind. Solomon, in all of his wisdom, says we're better off if we have one hand, maybe not with quite as much in it, but it's filled with contentment and peace and calm and tranquility than two hands completely full but filled with toil and chasing after the wind. Solomon goes on to give us another word picture for us to think about when it, as it relates to comparison. He says there was a man who was all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. Back in the ancient world, this simply meant that there was a man who had nobody to give his inheritance away to. See, back in those days, women wouldn't gain an inheritance from a wealthy father or a wealthy brother. Only sons, only brothers could get the inheritance from somebody else. Solomon's saying, here's a man who has no reason to be working 
so hard. He's got nobody to pass his wealth onto. And yet his eyes are filled with discontent, even though he has a lot of wealth. This man then asks this incredible question, please, whatever you do, if you don't get anything else out of today, I hope you get this one thing. Listen to the question that this man asks himself. He says, for whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. What an incredible question. Why am I working so hard? Why am I chasing after the wind? Why am I grasping at things? Why am I toiling so hard? I'm not even content with what I have. What is the thing that is motivating me to do this? I think for us in 2019, a question or a couple of questions that would be incredibly valuable for us to ask are simply this. Who or what are you comparing yourself to? Who or what says you are fill in the blank enough? Who or what says you're not skinny enough or you're not wealthy enough or you're not smart enough? Who or what is driving and motivating you to chase after the wind and compare yourself to other people in this world? Who's doing that? Is it a parent? Is it a relationship that you've had in the past? Is it some failure that you had in your past? What's the thing at the very bottom, at the root of it all, that is driving you to toil and chase after the wind? Who are you comparing yourself to? Who or what says that you aren't fill in the blank enough? Some of you, I think, perhaps God brought you here today to hear just this one truth. I think some of you are here today because God knows that you need to hear this one simple truth. Here's the truth. Your heavenly father says you are more than enough. Your heavenly father, whether you even believe there is a God or not, whether you're even not sure if there is a heavenly father out there, he wants you to hear this so loud and clear today. He wants all of us to hear this loud and clear today. You are enough. You don't have to struggle. You don't have to chase the wind. You, just as you are, you're enough. Don't have to compare yourself to other people. You're enough. You know why I know that this is true for every single person in the room? You know why I know that your heavenly father says that you are enough just the way you are? Because your heavenly father thinks you are so valuable, he sent his only son Jesus into the world just for you. That's why I know that every single one of us in this room, our heavenly father says, you are enough. He loved us so much. We're so valuable to him. He says, you're so valuable to me. You're worth everything to me that I would send my only son into this world just for you. That's why I know your heavenly father says, you are enough. There's a prevailing thought though, and I've noticed this across the entire planet. I've had the privilege of traveling to almost every single continent 
on the planet. And I've asked people this question over and over again. Hey, how do you think you can get to heaven? How do you think you can have a relationship with God? I've asked several people this, even in just the last couple of weeks. You know what the prevailing answer is? No matter what culture you're in, no matter what part of the world you're in, almost every time I ask the question, people will give me some version of an answer like this. They'll say to me, Jason, I'm just hoping that at the end of my life, my good will outweigh my bad. Essentially, they're saying, at the end of my life, I'm hoping that I will be good enough for God. That's such a myth. See, the reality is, none of us can measure up to God's standard. None of us can. We'll never be good enough for God. But yet, we are enough because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. That's what allows our Heavenly Father to say, you're enough. You don't have to work any harder. You don't have to chase the wind. You don't have to toil and grasp after things. You don't have to try to be good enough for me. My son Jesus already did it for you. He paid the price of your sin for you. That's why your heavenly father says, you are enough. Some of you are still trying to figure out, well, what does that look like, Jason? I understand that Jesus came to pay the price for my sin. I understand that he did all the work. And I don't have to work hard at it. But how good is good enough? You're still wondering. Here's what I want to encourage you with this morning. After the service, I want to encourage you to take a big step. I want you to come and see me after the service. I'm going to be hanging out, having morning tea over here by the little morning tea area, the deck over here on the right by the shed. And I've got a a little book. It's actually entitled, How Good is Good Enough? It explains the whole thing about how we can never be good enough and how Jesus has done everything for us. If you're still wondering about this whole question of, do I have to be good enough in order to be accepted by God? I would love it if you would just stop me and say, hey, Jason, I'd like a copy of that book. Because I want to find out how can I have a relationship with God? How can I follow Jesus? I want you to just find me while we're having morning tea. I've got plenty of these, by the way. If anybody wants one of these, I want you to just come and find me. And I'd love to explain to you how you too can feel and experience your heavenly father saying you are enough. When it comes to comparison, I came across this little quote several years ago from a guy named Dave Ramsey that I think summarizes the whole idea that we're talking about this morning. He says this, there is one and only one cure to comparison living and that is contentment. That's exactly what Solomon was talking about. There's only one way to get over this comparisonitis, and that's to live a contented life. So I want to give you some practical things to do this week. I want you to do me a favor one more time. Go ahead and put your two hands on your knees one more time. This week, I guarantee it, whether you're a scroller or you're just a stroller, doesn't matter, you're going to compare yourself to somebody else this week. I guarantee it. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to just follow these four steps when you find yourself scrolling or just strolling and comparing yourself to other people. Number one, identify what's in your fists. What's the thing that you're holding onto, that you're grasping onto? Trying to be skinnier, healthier, wealthier, prettier, smarter, funnier, have better kids or 
I don't know what it is that's in your fist, but start by just identifying it. And then the second thing I want to invite you to do is identify where is that motivation coming from? What's driving that in you? What's the root of the motivation? And then I want to invite you to do something. This is weird. This is totally crazy. I want you to sit down, think about those two things, and then I want you to literally open your hands. Physically open your hands. And then just replace whatever it is that's in your hands with contentment. I'll never forget, years ago I'm watching a, one of my kids playing basketball at a gym. And it dawned on me all of a sudden as I was thinking, man, they could play better defense than that. I'm a PE teacher. My kids should be able to play better basketball than that. It dawned on me all of a sudden. There are people in this world that so badly wish they could watch their kid play anything. There are people in this world that just so badly would love to have a child. How about you just replace it with contentment, Jason? Just put contentment in the palm of your hand. Release it. This week, as you find yourself comparing and squeezing your fist and grasping and toiling, replace it with contentment. So much is at stake. This is such a big issue in our world. So much is at stake. When you think about what's at stake, we've got friendships that are at stake, marriages, children. We've got health and finances. We can go ahead and go to the next slide. All of these things are at stake in our world. And the list is actually much bigger than this. It's much larger than this, what's at stake. When you think about your finances, probably some of you have made some purchases over the years based on comparison. I know I have. Some of you, your children, you're driving your kids to do certain things, all motivated by comparison. Your relationships with your spouse and other relationships that you have in this world, so much of it can be ruined by this simple thing of comparison. So this week, and as we go through these next few weeks in this series, Comparison Trap, I want us to begin the practice of simply this, replacing comparison with contentment. I'm convinced it's the only cure for comparisonitis. In fact, I think this is such a big deal. This is the school teacher coming out in me. I want you to actually repeat these words out loud with me together on the count of three. We're going to read this together. You guys ready for this? Here we go on count of three. One, two, three. Replacing comparison with contentment is the only cure for comparisonitis. Now, some of you haven't been to the cafe yet. You haven't got your coffee yet. And so that's why you struggled maybe reading it out loud. We can do better than that, folks. We're way better than that. Okay? I'm comparing you right now. Let's read it out loud together like we really mean it on the count of three. One, two, three. Replacing comparison with contentment is the only cure for comparisonitis. Let me pray for us. Father, as we dive into this topic of comparison, God, I'm reminded afresh today that this is a struggle for all of us in the room. Whether we've been following Jesus our whole lives or we're still trying to figure out what that looks like, God, I know that we all struggle with this. God, I pray that this week you would help us to replace comparison with contentment. Help us to physically open our hands. Like Solomon said, it's better to have contentment 
in one hand than two hands filled with toil and chasing after the wind. God, would you help us to replace comparison with contentment? And then God, for many of us in the room, God, many of us in the room need to be reminded afresh today that our Heavenly Father sees us as enough. Enough that he sent his son, Jesus, into the world to die for us. God, would you help us to see ourselves as you see us. We're already enough because of what Jesus did for us. And I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.